can hold on and be strong to the end because we know that Jesus wins at the end. Well, regardless of how you feel about the book of Revelation, some of you have never, never even touched it or read in it. Maybe you read one or two of um, well-known scriptures there. But you know when we talk about being physically healthy, we talk about having a balanced diet. If you just eat sugar and sweets and Coke all day because that's what you like best, guess what? You get an imbalanced diet. You become malnourished. You're not strong. You're not healthy. And it's the same thing with the, the Word of God. God has given the, us the whole Bible from Genesis right to Revelation. It's like one big book and all of it, we need to feast and feed on the whole Bible for us to have a balanced diet spiritually, okay? So if all you do when you read the Bible is read your favorite passages and Psalms and a few here and there, and you like the, maybe you like some of the Gospels, and you keep reading those things, they're good for you, it's good food, but you're not getting a balanced diet. And that's what happens to a lot of us as Christians. We stay out of the book of Revelation, and we get a wrong picture of Jesus we think that he's always, always going to always come and just pat us on the back and pat us on the shoulder and say, it's okay, don't worry. But the Bible speaks of Jesus not only being a lamb, but also being like a lion, okay? And John, who scripted this whole book of Revelation, when he saw Jesus in all of his glory, he knew him personally, but when he saw him, the glorified Christ, he fell as though dead. So there's aspects of Jesus that we meet in this book of Revelation that are important for us to have a balanced view as a Christian. We've mentioned before, and I just want to bring it up again, that this book, unlike any other book in the Bible, it carries with it a blessing and a curse. The blessing is found in, first, uh, in the first chapter in verse 3. It says, blessed is the one who reads allowed the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it because the time is near on the first of july which is a friday night we normally have intercession on a friday night but on this particular night of july the first we're going to have what we're calling walk through uh, walk through revelation and we're inviting the whole church to come and join us We'll be reading out loud the book of Revelation from chapter 1, verse 1, right to the end. And all, many of you will participate in reading it out loud. And we're going to have it with breaks of worship and intercession time. Because we want to receive the blessing that God has for us here. That is contained in reading it out loud. And not only reading it out loud, but hearing it. And taking it to heart. Because the time is near. We want to we want to receive this blessing. And then at the end of the book, in chapter 22, the very last chapter, verse 18 and 19, it says, I warn everyone, this is Jesus speaking, I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city 
which are described in this scroll. That's quite a serious curse, hey? And I think, unfortunately, probably a lot of people might be guilty of this because if any book has been dissected by theologians, it's the book of Revelation where people have added their own interpretations and added their own explanations and filled in the gaps and filled in the holes and tried to make sense of this book. But it also shows the high priority that God, Jesus, has on this book. If he says, you're blessed when you read it, and cursed is anyone who takes a word out of it. So if there's something in there we don't understand with our little minds, that's okay. Maybe when you need to understand it, God will reveal it to you. But let's not just discard it because God considers it important. And therefore, it should be important to us as well, right? Good. So I'm going to give you a few reasons why this book of Revelation was written. First of all, something that many of us don't realize but is the truth is that this book was written to ordinary people, not to theologians. Many of us stay out of this book because we're like, well, I'm not a clever person. I haven't been to Bible school for five years. I haven't been to seminary. There's no way I'm going to understand this book. And so I'll just avoid it until someone explains it to me. But do you know this book was written to the churches? It wasn't written to seminary students. It was written to ordinary people like you and me, churchgoers. And therefore, when we look at this book, we shouldn't be thinking that, hey, I don't have the intelligence to figure this one out. Because basically the summary, the bottom line of this book is that Jesus wins. He's the victor. Amen? And when you read it, guys, just use common sense when you're interpreting. Some of the things are quite clearly metaphorical and some things are literal. But I think just using common sense, a lot of it will become clear to you. Secondly, this book was written for a practical purpose and not for an intellectual one. It's not that so that you can have a detailed account of what is going to happen at the end time and you know exactly, exactly, exactly. If Jesus had wanted to do that, he would have included a lot more detail. It is on purpose that he's left out stuff because his reason for writing it is not so you have a step-by-step -step exactly. He wants you to rely on him and to trust him through this season. And it's written for a practical purpose. We'll get into that a bit later, and you'll understand why it's so important for us to know this book and understand it. Thirdly, God has only told us what we need to know so we can be prepared. Okay? There's 56 separate predictions found about the future in this book alone. But it's not everything. There's a lot that's been left out for the simple reason that you don't really need to know. You just need to trust him, that he knows, and that he's in control of history. It might look like it's out of control, but he is in control. He holds the times and the seasons. And he has made what he's taught us, what he's shown us in the book of Revelation is there so that we can be prepared. So what we are not told, we can trust. And one of the big reasons why Jesus wrote this book is to give us hope. To give you and me hope. In a world with increasing turmoil and tribulation, to give us hope that Jesus is coming back again. It's not all lost. 
it's not all hopeless. It might look like it, but Jesus knows what's happening. And in his good time, he is coming back. And it's going to be a glorious time. To me, the scripture that is like a key scripture in this whole book is right in the middle of Revelation. It's found in chapter 14 and verse 12. Because this, I believe, is why Jesus is encouraging this um, persecuted church. And he says, this, all of these troubles, these trials, these difficulties, the persecutions that you're going through, it calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his command and remain faithful to Jesus. Jesus' desire for you is to overcome, to remain faithful. And when he comes back, find you ready and waiting. The bride and the spirit say, come. He's coming soon. He wants us to be ready to overcome. And this is one of the main reasons why he's given us this book. It was written to the suffering church. It's not actually written by John. A lot of theologians discuss this one in detail. Because when you look at John's letters and the gospel that John wrote, he was very, very correct grammatically. His sentence structure was very correct. He was a very organized writer. But when you look at the book of Revelation, the grammar, a lot of it is, is incorrect. There's um, sentences that aren't finished. There's like things that don't really make sense. And so people, a lot of people have questioned whether he's the writer. But you know, John was on the Isle of Patmos, which was, he was a political prisoner, kind of like Robben Island, where Mandela was. He was also a political prisoner. And Paul was there, I mean, sorry, John was there as a political prisoner for his faith. And while he was there, suddenly Jesus appears to him. And he has this amazing revelation. And Jesus says, the angel tells him, whatever you see, write it down. Now, can you imagine if you were woken up in the middle of the night and you start having these amazing visions and you see um, creatures and you see war and you see battle and you see bloodshed and you have to write it all down while you're watching? Can you imagine that's quite difficult? In fact, 11 times in the book of Revelation, the angel has to tell John, come on, write it down, write it down. Because I think he was so surprised by what he was seeing that he forgot to write. And every time, God, uh, the angel would remind him, come on, keep writing, keep writing. And when he gets to the end, when Jesus said, cursed is anyone who takes from this book or, or adds to it, I think he thought, great, I'm going to send it exactly like it is. And they'll just have to figure it out for themselves. So it wasn't actually um, authored by John. It was authored by Jesus. It's his letter to the churches. His desire is for all of us to overcome. This book was not written to non-believers. It was written to the church. And what becomes very clear in the book of Revelation is that there's two eternal destinies for believers. Resurrection and reigning with Christ in the new universe, which it's God's desire that each one of us should be a part of that. Or to lose our inheritance in the kingdom and end up in eternal torment. Now, you know, God's inheritance in the kingdom, it's not just for those who profess their faith, but it's for those who keep the faith. 
That's why it's so important for us not to give up hope, to lose heart, to lose the way, and to start well but finish badly. Because it's the faith you finish with and not the faith you start with that will determine your end. So it's important for us to get a hold of what Jesus is saying in this book so that we can overcome each and every one of us. One thing that Jesus makes very clear in this book is that the trouble lasts only a short while. And after that, there's a thousand years reign with Jesus Christ and eternity with him. What we get as reward for being faithful to Jesus is far outweighing any trouble and trial that we can face in this life that we live in now. And we need to get a a new perspective where life is not just about these few short years you spend here on planet Earth. That is like a blink in the big picture. Eternity is so much greater than this short time we have here on Earth. This is just um, our practice ground for eternity. So guys, let's make the most of every opportunity. So we're looking at the letters to the churches. And last week we looked at the letter to um, the church in Ephesus. I just want us to look at the map. We have a map here. I just want you to um, just have an idea of where we are. Can you see um, in red there it says Patmos. There's a tiny little island there. That's where um, John was as a political prisoner. Right out there on a little island as a prisoner. And that's where God revealed himself to uh, John. Now, the church we looked at last week was Ephesus, the first one, the closest one, and it was a port city. 56 kilometers up north, we have Smyrna. And if you follow in a clockwise, um, clockwise the whole way around, we get around to all the different churches which we'll be studying over the next week. So next week, we're going up to Pergamum and then continuing down that way. Good. So today, we're looking at Smyrna. And the question could be, why would Jesus write in particular to these seven churches? Because there were a lot more churches than these seven back then. Um, But why did he pick these? And Sylvester touched a little bit on it last week when we were um, learning together. These churches are in Asia Minor, which is uh, Turkey, Turkey of today. And it was a main junction between the East and the West. You had Africa and Asia and Europe, and they kind of all converged in this place. And there was all these trade routes that were going right through that area um, here in Asia Minor. So it was a very key area, both geographically and historically. And also the Bible says that... Satan had his throne in Pergamum. Do you realize that Satan is not omnipresent like God is? He can only be in one place at one time. And at that particular time, 2,000 years ago, the Bible clearly states that Satan has his throne in Pergamum. So there was a lot of concentrated mission work around this area, but there was also a lot of persecution of the church. And I think that God's heart, Jesus' heart for the church was, well, if the church can survive in this kind of environment where they're being persecuted and, 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 and challenged in so many different ways, if the church survives here, it can survive anywhere in the world through the ages. And praise God, a lot of these churches 
I believe we can see from historical accounts, they responded to the letters that were sending they sent to them. They repented and they turned back to God. And we see um, how God moved and the church grew. And we're part of the reason we're here today is that the church survived through those terrible hard times. The world is still very much in a similar situation that they were back then 2,000 years ago. There are so many things in the world that is seeking to overcome the church. Both external persecution, and I know at the moment we don't suffer much of that here in Zambia. But all over the world, if we look in many places, there are churches that are suffering for the gospel and being killed. Families that are being destroyed and persecuted because of the gospel. It's a huge price that many Christians um, pay to become Christians. And we are blessed where we are at the moment that we're even allowed to meet together as we do here. Because there are many places that that is illegal and you can get thrown in prison for doing that. So Jesus here in this book, throughout it, he's encouraging the church, encouraging us, promises, promising us the rewards if we're faithful to the end, and also warning of eternal loss if we choose not to follow him. So the city of Smyrna, it was a beautiful city. I want you to try and imagine the city that Jesus was writing to. First of all, it was a beautiful city. It was actually called the pride or the glory of Asia. So it was a very key one. Um, and actually, of all the seven churches that were written to, none of those cities survived up to today. The only one that has survived is Smyrna. And if you go to Turkey today, um, in the same place where that city of Smyrna is, is the second largest city next to Istanbul in Turkey today. And there's a church even in there, in many churches actually, in this city at this point of time. So it also had a busy port. In fact, um, Smyrna and Ephesus, they were the two main rivals um, for trade um, at that time to be the biggest, the capital of trade because they were both big ports. It was a wealthy city. It had a huge harbor. And it was also a very cultured city. It had university. And one thing about this place of Smyrna, which made it very difficult for the church in this place, was it was very patriotic. And when this letter was written, they were under German, um, not German rule, Roman rule, okay? They were under the Roman Empire. And so there was what they called emperor worship. They would actually pray to the Caesar. And of all the cities in Asia Minor, the only city that was given the privilege to build a temple for Caesar worship was right here in Smyrna. And they had a temple for the worship of the emperor. So you were actually considered a traitor if you didn't participate in a show of, of patriotism. Can you imagine that if that was here in Indola? If we had a temple that we had to go and worship the president, and if you didn't do it, you'd get in trouble. What would you do if we were in a situation like that? But that's what they found themselves in as this church. So we've titled this message for Smyrna. We've called it Afflicted but Affluent. 
This is the title we've given because they were an afflicted church and yet affluent. Affluent means they were wealthy in Jesus' eyes. So we're going to just break it down a little bit first here. We were reading in the beginning, um, or Jones was reading to us the letter. And all of the seven letters begin with an address to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Do you realize that we have an angel watching over our church, reporting to Jesus on behalf of Open Church? I think that's a beautiful thought to have that. And we were talking about it a little bit last week as well, about how each church is like a lampstand. And do you know the purpose of a lampstand? It's just to hold a light, right? Jesus is the light of the world. And our job as a lampstand, as a church, is to shine Jesus to the world. So what happens if that light goes out? It defeats the purpose of the lampstand now, right? There's no point in having a lampstand because it's not shining a light. That's why it's supposed to be there. And we learned about the book, uh, uh, the letter to the Ephesians, Ephesus, that Jesus said to them, if you don't repent, if you don't turn around, I'm going to come and remove the lampstand. Why? Because it doesn't serve any purpose anymore. The reason we're there as a church is to shine Jesus to the community. We need to hold that light. And if we're not reflecting Jesus to the world, it doesn't matter how beautiful our lampstand is. There are many churches in the world today, and some of them are very fancy, very wealthy, and their lampstand looks so beautiful. But that doesn't really mean anything. It might be clever and look good in the world, eyes of the world, but if the lampstand doesn't hold the light of Jesus. Jesus doesn't consider it his church. And it's a very sobering thought for us to think about this because there are millions of churches in the world, worldwide. But how many of them do, does Jesus recognize as his church? When he counts his churches that belong to him, how many are his, and how many just think they are? Are we his church, or do we just think we are? His opinion, not our opinion, not the world's opinion, it's his opinion that matters most. What does Jesus think of us when he looks at us? And this is a season as we study these letters for us to have introspection, look in our own hearts. You are the church of Jesus. Are you carrying his light? Are you shining for him? Are you representing Jesus for who he really is? Or are you shining something entirely different? Secondly, we go to the attribute. In each one of the letters, Jesus, when he speaks to the, um, to the churches, he brings out a certain attribute or characteristic of who he is. And in this case, he brings these words. He says, these are the words of him who is the first and last, who died and came to life again. I think when you're struggling and suffering, many times you become so engrossed in what you're passing through that you don't see the big picture. 
And I think one of the reasons Jesus said this to the church, these are the words of him who is the first and who is the last. It's like lift your eyes up from the trouble and the tribulation you're going through right now. Lift your eyes and look at Jesus. He was there before the beginning of time. He's in control of what's going on now, and he will be there at the end. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of your faith, so that you don't grow tired and weary and lose the way. And then he says, the one who died and came to life again. None of us can say that, I don't think, unless some of you have been resurrected in here. But all of us can say that we will live, we are living, and we will die one day, right? But Jesus is the only one who can say, he died and came to life. Death is not the worst, guys. It's not the worst thing that can happen to you. Many of us think that death is the end. That's over. It's it. It's a doorway to what's beyond. And the way we live our lives in this world determines how your life will be when you pass through that doorway into eternity. So death is not the end. And we don't need to fear death because Jesus has overcome death. Many of us fear it. And I'm sure if we stood in front of making a choice, whether we're ready to die for Christ, I, I don't know when we, any of us would stand in that place. I just know that the grace of Jesus is so abundant that if we would ever be faced with that challenge and that choice, I believe he would give us the grace to do the right thing at the right time because his grace is sufficient. Then Jesus goes on to bring the approval to the church. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they are the synagogue of Satan. I know. Isn't that beautiful that Jesus knows what the church is going through? You're not passing through hardships and difficulties, and Jesus is so busy in heaven doing whatever he does that he hasn't noticed. He's such an amazing God. He knows everything, even down to the last detail of how many hairs you have on your head. And Jesus says, I know. I know your afflictions and your poverty. I think this is very interesting because when we look at it also, the Bible says Jesus is the head of the church. He's the head of open church. We don't have some kind of huge hierarchy where we have uh, the, the, the capital in Rome and we have a pope and God just speaks to the pope and then he disseminates information to the rest of the world. No, Jesus walks among the candlesticks. He visits our churches. He knows what's going on in the churches because he's the head of each one of them. That's his role. These Christians, I believe many of them, they, it's possible that some of them were poor when they came to faith. But it's more possible that a lot of them were affluent business people because Smyrna was a very wealthy city, a lot of business going on in this place. So it's quite possible that a lot of the members in this church were actually wealthy businessmen. But when they became Christians, they lost their wealth. And I'll tell you why. Because in order to be a businessman in Smyrna, you had to belong to what was called a trading guild. 
okay? Now, at these trading guilds, there were pagan religious ceremonies that they did. And you couldn't belong to a trading guild without taking part in these ceremonies. So what do you do as a Christian? These trading guilds had dinners. And before they ate, they would go through a religious ceremony of offering sacrifices to idols. So what do you do as a businessman if you were faced with that challenge? You need to belong to a trading guild in order to trade and do business, but you're required to do idol worship. What would you choose? And secondly, in this area, they grew a lot of grapes, drank a lot of wine. So these dinners very easily turned into drunken orgies. Towards the end of their celebration and eating, the prostitutes would come out and there would be immorality galore. Now, how do you handle that as a Christian? A lot of these believers, when they gave their lives to Christ and chose to follow him, they were reduced to poverty. The, the word of them here about poverty, it actually says that they were reduced to being beggars. And Jesus is saying, I know, I know where you're suffering for my name. I know what you've given up to serve me and to not live in compromise. Yet, Jesus says, you are rich. Wow. What a compliment to receive from Jesus. Here you are, and you haven't eaten for a few days, and you remember how it used to be, how you used to ride that beautiful Mercedes Benz, but when you received Jesus, everyone turned against you, and life is so hard, and now you don't even have food to feed your family. And Jesus says to them, yet you are rich. Not only were they suffering, afflicted by poverty, but they were also afflicted by slander, particularly from the Jews. Back in those days, every religion had to be re registered with the Roman Empire, okay? So the Jewish uh, faith was registered with the Romans, and actually, they were given permission not to worship the emperor. So back in the day, originally, the church of Jesus Christ was under that same registration that the Jews had. But when the Christians began sharing the gospel with the Gentiles, and they began to do all sorts of things that the Jews didn't approve of, they didn't want them under their registration anymore. So what would happen was the Jews would actually delight in reporting the Christians to the Romans and saying, those ones, they're Christians. They're not registered. They don't have a registration. And what used to happen was if you were not registered officially, you were considered illegal, which means people could happily persecute you and do anything to you, and the law wouldn't be upheld. You wouldn't be protected by the law because it's your own fault. Imagine. And this is what they were suffering, the slander of these Jews. But look here what Jesus says about them. They are Jews. Those who say they are Jews and are not, but they are the synagogue, synagogue of Satan. You know, I believe this church, these Jewish people there, they were very zealous. They really believed in what they, their faith, and they really believed they were the children of Abraham, and they had the truth. 
I wonder how many churches are similar to them today. Where when Jesus looks at them, he says, I don't know you. You don't reflect my light. You're a synagogue of Satan. In fact, Jesus said it to the Pharisees himself in John chapter 8. He said to them, your father is the devil. He was very blunt with them. He said, I don't know who you are. And we know from the word of God that the day will come on judgment day when Jesus will say that to people. And they'll be saying, but Jesus, we, we did this and this and this and this for you. And Jesus says, I don't know you. You know, these are harsh words to hear. But it's so important for us to make sure that we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't think you have a ticket to heaven just because you're a member in open church. Jesus wants to know each of you on a personal level. Jesus saw this church as wealthy. Do you know we can take none of our accumulated wealth with us when we die? No matter how wealthy you are, you can be the most wealthy person in the world. But the day you die, you cannot take any of your wealth with you. So the real test of your wealth, friends, is how much are you worth after you die? That's the real question. The test of your wealth. How much are you worth after you die? And really, guys, that depends on how you're storing up treasure in heaven, how you're living for eternity and not just for now. When we look at all these seven letters, the next thing that comes after Jesus' approval is his accusation. We heard last week from Ephesus that Jesus told them to repent and return to their first love. But here we see this persecuted church of Smyrna, Jesus had nothing negative to say to them. Nothing. All of their trouble was external and not internal. And this is not because they were a perfectly sanctified church. There's no church that is perfect. Okay? They were not perfectly sanctified. But Jesus did not want to criticize and doesn't criticize his suffering church. Because when we suffer, we live closest to him. And there's a purifying that takes place in our lives, even as we walk with him. Jesus did not criticize any. I just want you to see a short clip. I'll explain it to you afterwards. Let's have a look. Okay, good. Surfing the big wave, guys. I don't know how many of you have ever tried to surf on big waves. Anybody in here? No? Okay, we live too far from the seaside. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, what I wanted to bring across about this, do you see how these guys are anticipating the wave and they actually go up and they ride on the wave? And it is some of the most exhilarating experience to ride on a huge wave. Now, I've been in big waves, not big like that, but there's a, you know, two people can experience the same wave. And one person will ride it and enjoy it. And another person who has the same experience will hate it. And the whole reason is what we anticipate. I've been in the sea where I have stood with my back to the waves, looking in at the seashore. And suddenly a big wave comes and I'm 
unex- I'm not expecting it. And it comes and it crashes into me. Now, because you're not expecting it, the wave comes with a lot of force and it hits you down. It knocks you into the ground and it drags you along the bottom on the, on the sand, on the rocks. And you can get cut and you can get hurt and your um, um, swimsuit full of sand. And it's a very unpleasant experience. I've been in tears as a little girl being thrown around by waves. But if you anticipate the wave, you see it coming and you head into it, you can ride the wave. And this is one of the reasons I believe that Jesus is bringing this book of Revelation to us. And he's speaking to us. Because I want you to look at what the advice is that Jesus gives to the church right now. This church is suffering. Let's see what Jesus says to them. What is his advice to this suffering church? He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you. The devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as a victor's crown. Shouldn't Jesus give them 10 points to how to become prosperous? Prosperity gospel, these guys are so poor, they need to make money. No, Jesus doesn't preach a prosperity message here. Instead, what Jesus does, he's completely honest, completely honest. He promises them no practical relief from their suffering. Instead, he tells them there's more to come. In fact, we know Jesus has said that himself. In this life, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has told us that. And yet we don't like the trouble. We want to just hope that things will be fine and there won't be any hardships coming. But Jesus is honest with this church in Smyrna. These guys, and why is he being so honest? He's telling them to take heart. You've overcome. They've already lost money. They've lost their reputations because of the slander of the Jews. And now Jesus says that some of them will lose their freedom. They'll lose their security, and there'll be intense persecution and even loss of life. I'm sure that's not what they want to hear. That's not nice news. But, you know, I love Jesus' honesty because he wants them to be prepared. And that is one of the reasons we're studying this book. God wants us to be prepared. So just like the surfer, when the big wave comes... You're anticipating it. You're ready for it. And you know that whatever comes your way, God is going to enable you to overcome. And even if it means to give your life and to die for the gospel, that's not the end. There's a great reward for us. And that reward is waiting for us. And that is what Jesus wants us to have the right perspective. Jesus himself said, for the joy set before me. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. So when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't fear the death, but he focused his eyes on the reward that he would get when he passed through that. And that's what he wants us to do. So he's encouraging the church here. He's saying, don't be afraid. And that is God's word to us as well this morning. Do not be afraid. Why? Because fear and faith are not compatible. If you are full of fear, you can't be full of faith. 
And God wants you to rise up with faith in your heart, believing that he is in control. He has your life, your times, your season in in his hand. He knows every single day that you're going to live on this planet Earth. He has numbered your days. He knows you intimately. And we need to have that kind of trust in him in, in our lives. 366 times we find this, these words in the Bible, do not be afraid. Jesus does not want you to fear. And this is one of the reasons we have the book of Revelation. He wants to prepare you for what's coming so you don't live in fear, but you live with confidence, knowing that he is in control. Finally, number six, the appeal. He says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In all the seven letters that we have, Jesus says the same thing to them. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says. And that is the desire and the heart of Jesus Christ this morning as well to each one of us. Let's open our ears and hear with our spirit ears what Jesus is saying to the church so that each one of us will overcome. He wants all of us to be overcomers. Finally, number seven, the assurance that he gives. He says, to the one who is victorious, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Do you know there's something worse than death? And that's the second death. Jesus has said in Matthew, he said to his disciples, don't fear those who can just kill your body, but fear him who can kill your body and soul and throw you into eternal fire. That's what you really need to fear. Because death is a very temporal thing. The second death is something much worse. And Jesus says here, To the one who is victorious, you will not be hurt at all by the second death. Jesus wants you to overcome. And do you know the church can't do this for you? You as an individual have to rise up and become an overcomer and to finish well. To ride that trial and tribulation and wait for Jesus to welcome his return. And be ready and prepared when you come.